0: Alexei Lashkin, a member here, and also on the vestry. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, on this Christ the King Sunday, give us ears to hear that which makes for peace. Lord, give us the peace that comes from above. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to the end of the Christian year in the West, the last Sunday before we hear (coughs) Advent, which will be the first Sunday of our Christian year and welcome to Christ the King Sunday as I was getting ready to um, and I hope you all had a lovely Thanksgiving as well (laughs) That you had a good time with family and safe travels so I was getting ready for this uh, sermon and thinking about Christ the King Sunday I thought I'd give you some context so Christ the King Sunday is a feast that is less than 100 years old It is a feast day that comes from 1925 uh, from Pope Pius XI. And you think, well, Pope Pius XI. Well, what was happening in 1925? Well, what was happening was uh, the first years after um, World War I. Uh, For my family, what was happening as uh, Russians, as they were in the midst of the Russian Civil War. And so we have this focus uh, from uh, this ecumenical focus on, on Christ, the king of the universe. And I thought I'd just uh, give you some context, see if you, might, if you might think that this, what he's writing about, Pope Pius XI, has some resonance to what's happening in our day. I think about this being the end of the Christian year. In a year from now, much uh, will happen in our own nation, uh, for good and for ill, in the next year. So let's, Pope Pius XI, this is in his encyclical, his first one, 1922, about World War One. I'll just read a few brief things. He says, one thing is certain today, since the close of the Great War individuals, the different classes of societies, the nations of the earth have not as yet found true peace. Hmm might be similar to our day. They do not enjoy, therefore, that active and fruitful tranquility, which is the aspiration and the need of mankind. This is a sad truth which forces itself upon us from every side. For anyone who, as we do, desires profoundly to study and successfully to apply the means necessary to overcome such evils, it is all important that he recognize both the fact And the gravity of the state of the affairs. He goes on to to talk about how the nations of the earth have made peace on paper, but not peace in their hearts. Not peace in their hearts. Maybe we can relate to this, having just come from Thanksgiving, a time which is supposed to be about peace. A time where, for some, I'm sure it was lovely and peaceful. But what we also know, Thanksgiving can bring up uh, the brokenness that we face within our immediate families at times, the difficult tensions. And hopefully and prayerfully, that was not your Thanksgiving. But I do know for many, Thanksgiving is not always a time of peace, not always a time of tranquility, not always a time of ease. In our lectionary, we also have a a complicated uh, passage from Matthew 25, the separation of the sheep and the goats. So I'll go to that in a a moment. But what are we to make of this idea, the context of this feast day, of Christ as our peace? What makes for peace? The Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus rises from the dead, he says these simple words, peace be with you. Peace be with you. What is this peace that we long for? This peace that comes from above, as we say in our liturgy, that we we pray for the peace that comes from above. What is the peace that makes it possible to have peace with one another, to have fellowship around the table of Christ? How do we achieve such a a peace in and of ourselves? What is the peace that comes from this sense of um, the peace that we pray for and the peace that we have and that we pray for for our nations and ourselves and for our families. Where does this peace come from? Well, getting into our passage, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Or th- thirsting, give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When I first came to Washington, D.C. as an intern at the National Association of Evangelicals, this scripture was actually a fairly uh, popular scripture used in what I would describe as the kind of social justice circles, that we knew that we followed our Lord Jesus Christ because we believed in feeding those who did not have food. We believed in visiting the prisoners. That actually this is what our our advocacy, our sense of uh, speaking out on behalf of those who have been uh, harmed was part of our own personal sense that we knew we were living into the righteous acts of God. As I've matured in my Christian faith, not to say I was immature back then, but we all grow in our understanding of the scriptures, I would come to encounter church fathers that would really talk about this passage, Matthew 25, as really focused on the needs necessary for the body of Christ. That's really our brothers and sisters who are in need that we should go and meet their needs. As I come to you today, what I'd like to offer as it relates to this theme of peace is really, as Matthew is structuring his gospel, that Matthew 25 is a reflection or a, um, a completion of Matthew 7, where we have the Sermon on the Mount, which is parts of the things that make for peace is our attentiveness to those that we're in relationship with and their needs. It's not to say, I I certainly can affirm, it's not to say that we should not advocate on behalf of those who uh, are in need. You know, we have Operation Sugar Plum where we're we're giving to those who are in need. It's not to say that we shouldn't go and give to those who need food, or even that we should engage in the public service process for the larger justice issues that impact society, but I think, what's being juxtaposed here and on this Sunday where we're thinking about peace and what makes for peace I would say that part of what is being said here is where do we have those in relationship who are in need and perhaps some of you know relatives who have been in prison and so when you think about Jesus' words about visiting those in prison your mind goes there and you can offer a a prayer as your mind goes there. Perhaps some of you have had family members who are destitute or have needed to borrow money from you because they've been in various needs, and your mind can go there. And I I will say to you that um, it's, it's certainly true that when it's a family member who has a need or a loved one who has a need, your mind doesn't automatically, at least mine does not automatically go to, oh, it's Jesus who is asking me. <laughs> My mind doesn't do that. Part of it is because oftentimes the person in need is in chaos themselves, and, and the chaos has a history to it. The, the chaos didn't just happen. It's, um, it's not oftentimes the sort of distress we have with family members, Is not the sort of distress of the person whose car broke down on the side of the road, where there's this sense of um, we, can, we can put our minds and our hearts into the sense of innocence that um, we should help those, and I think this is more American culture than anything else, but in in American culture, what we have to push back against, because it's not gospel culture, is the sense that we should only help those who um, have a need that is no fault of their own. (laughs) We should only help those who have a need where it's sort of innocent, you know. And you can see this in our advertising, uh, where the advertising for groups that advocate on behalf of those in need. I've been in many meetings in D.C. where intentionally Christian groups, when they're trying to talk to Americans about the needs, will try to center the children because children have the sense of innocence, right? Or many of our family members who are in need don't have a sense of innocence. There's a long history of bad behavior, questionable behavior, behavior that doesn't resonate with our hearts. And yet we are asked to give. Yet we are asked not to judge. Judge not, lest ye be judged. This This is Jesus earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. And how do we have peace when it comes to family and relationships that have taken advantage of us? Maybe they haven't paid us back for the money that we've loaned to them. How do we have peace? Well, this is where prayer and a regular life of prayer and a regular heart that forgives... And I would even counsel, when you get angry at said person, say, "Lord, help me to forgive." Simple prayers. Simple prayers create the sense of peace—the peace that comes from above, the peace that causes nations not to be at war with one another, the peace that causes wholeness and family, not perfection. I think in another American tendency, we we have to fight against. Is a tendency that really comes from the, the Disney movies. And Disney's a wonderful and interesting company. So I don't want this is not a long sermon about that. But the sense of the Disney movie, which itself comes from the Western European tradition, uh, or our take on the Western European tradition, is the American take is that there will be happy endings. That there will be a nice bow wrapped up into it. And, and all that was wrong has been made right. The person, you know, the things that have been wrong have been fixed. But this is not the lives that God gives us on earth. If uh, one of the books that has really caught my attention the last few years is the journals of Alexander Schmemann, which are really interesting. And, and you know, f- find a journal of an, another saint or someone that you like. I'm not saying Schmemann's the only one you should read. Read a Christian journal of someone who's lived their life for God and re- you know, if, they, if there is a book that, where their journal entries are present one of the things that you're going to discover as you read uh, towards the end of Shemayman's life is that he has the same stresses he had 15 years prior and what happens is he, he gets into illness and he immediately then has to prepare for death and I'm not saying that as a kind of like this will be your fate or anything like that, but what I'm trying to say is that the the Christian culture that gets created in us, the peace that comes from above, has us look at reality, but not as people without hope. So we're asked to press into the reality of family members who have disappointed us, those who have taken advantage of us. We're asked to press into our frailty as children of God, and yet not without hope, not without hope. As we come to the Eucharist each week, I would invite you to think about that as part of the hope we profess as Christians. Christ has died. Christ will come again. He is alive in me. Our habits, our prayers, the seriousness for which we take our faith, the formation classes that we go through, the small groups that we're a part of, the worship that we sing, They're all part of the two great commandments that Jesus gives us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It is in the simple, difficult things that we sometimes face where we find Christ is born in us, and we are slowly reshaped according to the pattern of the Christian life. And that is the great hope that we have as we end our Christian year. The great hope that we have as Christians is that not the sense of we're going to have apex experiences, though if we have them, it's wonderful and it's a glory. But it's not the sense of of radical, in-a-moment transformation, though God can do those things. It is the steady hope of a changed heart and a changed life. And one of the ways in our gospel passage that we can see this changed heart in this changed life is we do not give up on those that we are responsible for and write them off, which is such a natural tendency. We actually see it celebrated in American culture. We have this phenomenon, the daytime talk show. The daytime talk show does not feature the person who was patient with their, you know, um, out-of-sorts mother for 30 years. That's not what's celebrated on the daytime talk show. The daytime talk show does not celebrate the 20 years of tender care that was given to a disabled child or the 20 years of patience between siblings. Sibling rivalry can be pretty significant. What the daytime talk show celebrates is uh, the fast and quick fix. The person who is wrong is kicked out of the family things that were difficult or suddenly fixed in a way that writes someone out. And brothers and sisters, that is not Christian culture. That is not Christian gospel. Christian gospel, Christian culture is to be patient with the least faithful member of our family, to be patient with the least faithful person that we're responsible with. And as we do that, tend to our households, tend to our hearts, then Our sense of being salt and light into the society comes more easily to us. One of the harder discussions I've had over the last several years uh, with friends is really around the sense of do you give, and I'm not trying to create controversy, but I just want to give you a sense of a principle, not a commandment, just a principle. Should you give to those who are homeless? Should you give to them? Should you give them a quarter? Should you give them a dollar? Should you buy them a meal? not going to give you the answer for what you should do. But what I would say the Christian life points us to is where is your heart when the person is asking you for something? Is it to give without judgment? Whatever you do give, whether it's a hello or kindness or a dollar or a meal. Again, I'm not going to give you what you should do. But the Christian culture pushes at your heart and says, judge not, lest ye be judged. Are there not sins in your own life that are as bad to God as what you believe this person who you do not know their sins are? How do you see the person who is in need and asks of you as part of the human story, as part of not even just the human story, but the story of God working in the world? And how are you salt and light to that person? Going back to the scripture in this gospel, it's interesting um, He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Not good words to hear from Jesus. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. But I find it interesting. I mean, the whole passage is very interesting. But it's interesting that those on this left, their reply is, If we knew it was you, Lord, we would have done it. Which speaks to, in part, with the time we have left, the judgment we use for those who are worthy of help and those who are not worthy. Speaks to the judgment. There's a real clear push from Jesus to uh, not be so sure about your judgments for those who are in need. And that is hard. That is a hard saying. But one of the ways that we can get into this hard saying and we can get into celebrating Jesus, the king of the universe, and we can get into this feast day and the peace that comes from above, is a regular habit of examining our conscience. Um, and for some, this will look as simple as, Lord, help me. Give me your eyes to see. Give me your spirit to understand. And for others, it might involve a, a, a deeper examination of our relationships and, and the need to think about what we face in our day-to-day. Whatever it may involve, what, what it will certainly involve is a dependence on prayer it will involve a dependence on prayer and a dependence on the presence of God in our lives. That presence that we have in the Eucharist each week, that presence we have when we worship God in spirit and in truth, that presence we have when we orient our lives to the Christian culture that we're called to, the gospel-centered culture that we're called to. And that work is a slow work, and it's not a work of judgment, it's a work of grace, it's a work of peace, it's a work of love. Because as we look at the reason this feast day was founded, the shadow of World War I, the millions of people who died, the anxieties we face about this year in our own common life, the life of the United States, an anxiety that we'll live into over the next year. We pray for the peace that comes from above, but that peace starts in our own hearts, and that peace starts with our own relationships. And this text from Matthew reminds us to re-examine where we have the hard spots. Re-examine where we have the hard spots with those who are we closest with to start. Because the gospel is always about the personal. It's not about the abstract, at least our relationship with God. So where are those hard spots? And I invite each of us to invite Christ anew into those areas. Because there's forgiveness at the cross. This is not a... A Christian life that demands perfection, but it is a Christian life that demands repentance, and that we see the reign of peace that comes from above. And as that peace enters in, it begins to spread into our families, and it and indeed it, it then spreads into a church life. What is that church doing? Neighborhoods, and on from there, because we cannot control what the next year will bring, for good or for ill in these United States. But we can trust the one who has been faithful from that first resurrection day till till now. A faithful God who has brought peace among many different kinds of cultures and continues to do that again. And our act of coming to worship every week is that act of hope. That the Lord will renew our hearts and our minds and renew our relationships and that he will begin a good work in each of our lives. And though we cannot control what others will do, we can control, with God's help, the Lord being our helper, our sense of judgment that we often bring to those we disagree with the most. So let us live into the fruits of the Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, and renew our faith in the King who provides us the way of peace. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.